0: been welcomed. We now approach the uh, the final session in Ecclesiastes. And um, I, for one, have, uh, have really welcomed having to go through... Uh, it, it's one thing to go through the Old Testament. It's another thing to go through a book like Ecclesiastes. Um, of all the kind of Old Testament books you can kind of choose, it's probably one of the few that people would probably never preach on in their lifetime. Or people can be in a church... For a good long period, and never hear anything on Ecclesiastes, because it's just you know, or Songs of Solomon. It's just one of those books where people just kind of like think, "Well, what's the kind of point?" Um, but everything in Scripture is um, is given for our edification, and um, and it shouldn't be so. So we've been looking at the whole idea of is life worth living, and um, and it's again, I think, great to conclude, to be able to conclude on this particular chapter because I think it tells us a lot as the book does um, and so let me pray us for God to help me and to help you that as we are engaged in um, speaking and hearing that it will be done so um, with the aid of the Spirit of God. Father thank you for Uh, this final session in Ecclesiastes, Lord, and hopefully, Lord, not the final session we will ever have in this book um, in our lifetime, but Lord, uh, again, just as we have gone through this book as a church, we pray that, Lord, your word has gone through us as a church as well, in edifying us and bringing us up to speed on what it is to um, make life under the sun everything, Lord, and how you cause us through the gospel to look up And to see you and to want to be a witness uh, to the glory that you have revealed beyond this life. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, because sometimes we have made life everything, Lord. And I pray, Father, for those who have, especially have experienced tragedies, Lord. And, you know, Lord, that you will particularly lift up their heads today to see the glory that is to come. Father, that they will see that life is worth living. Thank you, Father, for your spirit being amongst us, Lord, and have promised that, Lord, that your spirit will, as it were, strengthen your church. Be with me, Lord. Help me to, to do as you will. Help us as listeners, Lord, as well, that we will again hear, as Jesus said, hear carefully. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, Amen. I think it's it's always good to kind of start with a story, and um, or at least something that kind of paints um, some kind of experience that kind of marries us to the text. And um, and I and I, I think there are some particularly good experiences I've had, especially as a young person. Having I, I never grew up in the church i um, I was sent to church as a young man um, <laughs> as a means of getting out of the house. Uh, my parents never went church van came, picked us up Saturdays and Sundays uh, <laughs> and we went to church and this was probably my early uh, from about seven and eight and then at the age of ten, my dad eventually became a Christian and we had to go to church uh, on a weekly basis but then I was especially when there were kind of like um, tent meetings and as they were evangelistic meetings outreaches as they were I was no stranger to altar calls no stranger to going up on altar calls that's that's for sure and um, constantly, you know, as, a, as you, know, you were here, you know, just as I am being played in the background, you know, without one plea. I don't know, even for someone who had not grown up in a Christian home, there was something incredibly compelling about that. And I constantly went up, but never got baptized until, until I was around 20. But in the process of growing up, and kind of going in, you know, kind of finding myself attached to these messages, and kind of always feeling like I need to go up. This is about me. Uh, one of the, one of the big things that kind of hit me was you don't know whether you're, what's going to happen tonight. Tomorrow's not promised. And as a young person, having to think about that rationally. I had to come to terms with the fact that I really didn't know whether I was going to live, whether long life was really going to be a promise to me. I mean, it really struck me, and, I, and the preacher would always hit that hole, and I would always respond to it, I really don't know. Because they would always frame it as a question, wouldn't they? They would say, do you know that you're going to be alive tomorrow? When I thought about it, I said, I hope so, but I don't know. I really don't know. And I responded to that. When I was 20, I came to the Lord and um, I I have to kind of relay this next experience because it has shaped so much of what I see and I think it relates so well to the text today. So I I I had a friend who was going to the same church that I was going to, was approximately four years older than me. We went to the same school, um, kind of looked out for me, was kind of a big brother, even though I had many big brothers, he was another big brother. And um, at the age of about 18, he left the church. He was originally like a a deacon, and he left the church. And um, I remember him picking me up once, I was waiting at a bus stop going to school, and he picked me up, he drove along, and he said, um, and I, I started a conversation with him, and I said, well, why are you not going to church anymore? He said, ah, you know, I believe, and da-da-da-da-da, as they, they say, and, um, and it's in my heart, and, you know, God is always there kind of thing. And then he kind of rounded out and he said, Well, look, look at the church. I mean, I was in an old West Indian church, predominantly West Indian church. And he said, Look at all these people. And, I, and he looked at, you know, my dad being kind of one of those people as well. He said, Look at these people. They've come to, their, they've come to God in their kind of the, the end of their lives or the kind of latter part of their lives. So my dad, being a Christian, I say, around the age of like mid 40s and very similar. And when I looked around, you know, there was something to be said. You know, a lot of people had actually come to Christ, you know, in their latter part of their lives. Not the end of their lives, but the latter part of their lives. And he said, I will come back when I'm old. (laughs) You know, when my life is over. I I want to experience my youth. I want to experience the benefit of my youth. And I become a Christian around 1992. And... My life was punctuated with the fact, the beginning of my Christian life was punctuated with the fact that I heard he died. I heard he died in a specific way that made me think, praise God, I made a decision when I could. He collapsed in his house, went into a coma, And he was in a coma for two weeks and died of meningitis. Had no idea that it was meningitis. Just died. And I remember going to the family home and and being around there. And as I was sitting there, having recently made the decision to come to Christ, these articles came back to me in a way that was quite real. You do not know. You do not know. What is promised to you? Serve God in your youth. Let's read the text. I want to read the first part and deal with that. We're in Ecclesiastes 12. Um, I'm going to read 1 to 8. I'm reading from the ESV not necessarily the best translation, but it's the one I I, I kind of tend to go to. But please listen. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, And the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease, because they are few. And those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid, also, of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, The The desire fails, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities says the preacher, all is vanity. So verse one. I mean, how how we begin to understand this passage really kind of depends on how how I believe we, we define evil days. I mean, most of your translation will probably say difficult days, doesn't it? But the... (laughs) <laughs> the Hebrew is raah. it very rarely means difficult. It means evil, wickedness, bad. It's bad days. A, a note about translations. All English texts, for those of you who already know this, please bear with me, but all English texts are in some ways an interpretation of the text. It's very hard to move one language into uh, a, a into another language without having to make some kind of decision about how you interpret it, especially where, as it were, an ancient text. But I think difficult days has been done because it helps them to, to, as it were, determine how you're going to interpret the rest of the text. So the difficult days, if it refers to being old, it's easier to say, well, the old days are not necessarily evil days, are they? So I think it's an interpretation decision to kind of say, difficult, but evil is is more accurate. I believe it's more consistent as well, as we listen to Ecclesiastics speak on its own terms, that we hear the the whole book as opposed to, let's picture this kind of last bit and make a decision about what it means here. Does the teacher really believe that people will grow old? Everybody is guaranteed to grow old. Ecclesiastes 10.14b says, No man knows what is to be, who can tell him what will be after him. Ecclesiastes 11.8 But if a man lives many years and and rejoices in them all, Yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. All is coming to vanity. If you hear the text, if you hear the the, the the preacher, he is not saying that all people will get old. It would be a false assumption. So when people come to this text, they normally there's there's kind of. Three general interpretations of it. And so I'm kind of having to pin, because I do not go with the normal interpretation. I can only be here and support the one that I believe is helpful. But please do not take it as the final word on it. But I think I will kind of hopefully help you understand why I believe this is not old age being allegorized. So anyway, we know that more times you've heard this passage and seen it as like an allegory of old age. That tends to be the general consensus amongst most commentators. The second one is that it's more literally talking about a funeral. I think that one is a little bit better. And the third one, more as, as kind of like more um, text-critical stuff comes in, and this is to spare you the kind of academia of all of this, but more recent commentaries are now starting to lean towards the whole idea of the eschatological end, the end of the world, so to speak. I think verse 2 brings us in line with that. In a sense, when you, when you kind of read most commentators, there's certain, there's certain verses that they kind of think, when they kind of go with this whole idea of the allegory of the old age, there's certain Verses within 1 to 8 that basically don't make any sense. And so therefore they kind of like say, I don't really know what to make of this. But I think when you read the whole idea of the the stars, the, the, the sun, the moon and the stars being darkened, it is always within text, as far as I can read, a sign of the end of the world. In the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, what we have is a depiction of the end of the world, the end, an eschatological end, when the sun, the moon, and the stars are darkened. If you're taking notes, Isaiah 13, 9 to 11 is good to, to read. Jeremiah 31, 34 to 36, again, gives you a, a, a framing of this. Ezekiel 32, 6 to 8. Joel 2, 10. And Joel 3, 15, Matthew 24, 29, we know those famous verses of the sun and the moon being dark with Jesus says. And Luke 21, 25. I think he is saying it very much in line with what we hear in Hebrews 9, 27, isn't it? About it's a for man once to die and then after that the judgment. I think he's mixing this whole idea that when we die, it's the end of our world, whether it is literally the end of the world or not. And I think it fits better with what we have at the end of chapter 11 and what we have at the end of chapter 12, which is the whole idea of oh, you are going to face your maker. You are going to face your final judge. He is talking about death being the end of the world for you. What do we make of verse 3 then? Well, again, verse 3 is very similar to what we see in um, Matthew and Luke, where Jesus is talking about the end of the world, is we're seeing that all aspects of society, the servants, the strong men, the women that are out who are grinding, the women that are indoors, it's saying that basically when the end comes, it affects everybody, no matter what your status is. The male servants, the nobility, the the noble men, the women who have to work for a living, and the women of high society, who are looking out at the world. All of society will be affected by death. And all of them certainly will be affected by an eschatological end. Let me just define an eschatological end as well. It's not necessarily means the end of the world as far as Jesus comes and everything comes. In in those days, a culture coming to an end, a culture basically like what we see in the Babylonian captivity is an eschatological end. It's the end of the world. It's the end of that culture. So it has various meanings. In verse 4, we see that the the funeral, or the, the deaths, as it were, or the death, puts the village silent. They're quiet. All that can be heard is the sound of the mourners as business comes to a halt for the burial rites. What do we make of verse 5? Again, um, this is one of those weird ones where people now say, well, uh, old people are afraid of heights, and that's what it means to be on high and, and as such. Uh, I don't, it's a hard one for people to interpret, but the one I think I, 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 I agree with is that the one on high, or it could mean with on high, is talking about the fear of the person on high, because if you're coming to the end, if you're coming to your death, it's like now I'm going to meet my maker, in Hebrew it can mean f- with on high. I'm going to meet the person from on high, and I need to meet my maker. It's a terrifying day, isn't it? If we think about having to take account of our lives. Um, One of the ways to interpret the whole idea of the almond tree, again, typically, um, the almond tree is white. So people tend to think of it as, again, an allegory of, of old age, the grasshopper being bent over. Again, I think this is about nature. In a sense, it's almost like a denial of reincarnation. It's talking about nature kind of re-blossoms and kind of goes in there, but death for us is quite final. And I think that's a smoother Interpretation. smoother one. And I think because the final part of that text says, (coughs) and desires fails, which um, generally is interpreted, um, the failed libido, uh, because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the street. I think it's more helpful to look at this as, you've come to the end of your life. You're going home. You're not going to blossom again like the the almond tree. You are being dragged to your maker. Verse 6. I don't want to spend too much time here. Again, it's a picture, the silver cord being broken. Um, It's kind of a picture of, again, like lamps being held up, um, as it were, I'm um, presumably by silver cords, presumably by, you know, obviously if you're a poorer person, by more inferior material. But it's the whole idea of that your light no longer is shining. You're no longer able to burn within the context where um, our lights are now dimmed. And as we cut those cords, the lamp falls and the light goes out. So again, it's again an allegorical language for saying, it's the end. Verse 7 a picture of the creation. And again, this is where the whole idea of Genesis 1 comes to mind here. In Genesis 2, the whole idea of God giving breath, the breath going back, us turning back to the ground. And we're seeing that in reverse. We're seeing man go back to his beginning. We cannot necessarily say this is alluding to an afterlife when, this, when we say the Spirit is going back to God. But it does seem to allude to the mortality of the human soul. The fact that if we are truly made in God's image, if we are truly both creature and both emulate to be like our creator, then there is a part of us which can never die. Our bodies can die. But who we are in our soul never dies. Because God preserves it. It is the part of us that God has given to us. But we will speak a little bit more about this later. Verse 8 is... Again, the catchphrase of Ecclesiastes, isn't it? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Or meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. But I don't want to park there at the moment, and you've heard probably a lot of comments on on what this could mean and how we might interpret it differently from the general vanity of vanities. But I leave you with a question as we kind of go into the next section is, is life really absurd? is life really meaningless? Part two now, we have what is called, um, again, as you heard in chapter one, the the, the frame editor. The frame editor being someone who is writing to help you understand the text in front of you. I think this is, uh, again, a decent and and a good interpretation because obviously we see the tone change, but something I would like you to note that it was not absurd for people or not Peculiar for people in those days to write in the third person. It doesn't necessarily have to be a a, a different author, but I think it probably is. Let's read through 9 to to 14 and uh, again talk about that. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like golds and like nails, firmly fixed are the collected sayings that are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a wariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let me deal with 9 and 10 together. I, call, I kind of labelled this one as like the call to be erudite. Erudite basically means to be learned. We live in a strange time where, in a sense, in one respect, intellectualism is held up quite high to get a good education. And obviously, we began this series looking at one of the most educated men in the world, his sudden death, um, having received how many PhDs and, and uh, degrees and all the rest of it and And, and it 's interesting because we have accepted intellectualism on so many different levels. we expect people to be learned in so many different ways, but not in every way. I was watching Wimbledon last week and um, and just as a kind of an illustration I, and i was um, I was amazed i mean i don 't normally watch tennis it 's not my thing, but you know why not um, and it was how technical it had become. I mean, when you haven't watched something quite often, you kind of like the gradual things of kind of bringing in more analytics and statistics and all the rest of it. You kind of like you kind of like it's like growing up around someone you see all the day. You don't necessarily see all the different th- features. But because I don't watch tennis often, I, all of a sudden I was like, oh, wow, this is very technical. They were showing all these things like first-ball placements and second-serve well, second, second placements and, and, and where the other person didn't return, and they were showing all these kind of like things about the court, and, and I was like going, wow. And they were showing quite definitively areas where people couldn't return the ball with this particular player. I would say, wow this has become quite intellectual, this has become quite technical. And it's weird, because we are supposed to, and we find it entertaining. And, it, and it's good to kind of sit down and be able to understand why someone technically is winning against another person, rather than just thinking, oh, they're just better. There's a, there's a strategy to the way that people play. I say this to say that today, I think, not necessarily everywhere, there is an anti-intellectualism towards Christianity. The assumption is that intellectualism spoils it. Being all technical and all the rest of it, and uh, (laughs) it kind of, it's not good for Christianity. It's kind of a, a more of a personal thing. And you know what? They would be right. If, it was, if intellectualism was pl- put in place to replace any personal aspect of Christianity. They would be right, but not always. But intellectualism and being erudite in our understanding of Christianity isn't always about replacing our personal life. In fact, what it does is it's, it can show you areas where you are failing and why you are failing as we've been learning from in the Marriage matter stuff, the, the issues of the heart. People have taken great time to go and say, why do people focus on trying to change people's surface behavior? Let's deal with the heart issues. And the heart issues tend to be not the fact that you find this particular thing frustrating, as, as we're kind of learning about marriage. In, in a sense, it's really not about whether you care about the, how the toothpaste is used or whether the toilet seat is put up. It's about things that you feel in your heart that never come to the surface. You never really think about it. But people, like the teacher in Ecclesiastes, has sat down and thought about it. Why do people keep on doing these things? But we in our kind of anti-intellectualism just want a simple, how do I just, just give me a prayer that will just stop me from doing the sin in things? That will stop me from, you know, um, eating things I shouldn't eat and watching things I shouldn't watch. Surface stuff. Similarly, there's people who believe that the best way to study the Bible is in isolation. Again, when I say it like that, it sounds like, well, that just sounds very cold and horrible. No one ever do it. But what we kind of think is that like when they say, "Well, I'm trying to understand the Bible for myself," right? Because I don't want to be contaminated by all these other different ideas. But again, when we look at the word, the word never teaches us that that is what it means to be a Berean. Being a Berean is not about rejecting everybody else's ideas in favor of your own. What we see from scripture is that as Paul taught Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, go and find other faithful men and teach them also. In that sense, the apostles' doctrine was something that was supposed to be passed down from generation to generation. In other words, no generation is supposed to sit in isolation and think, my ideas are the most important. The way I see the world and the way that the older people saw the world, I'm just going to kind of reject it. In other words, what we're doing is we're building on other people's work, like they do in science. No scientist sits down and says, let me start all over again. They pick up somebody else's work and then say, how can I now move this forward? Again, looking back to this whole idea of the younger generation, we sit. And if we're honest, we were there too. We sit most of our lives thinking that our ideas and our generation is the coolest and we really know what's going on. And the old people have spoilt the world. And for much of our youth, we are isolated in our own opinion amongst our peers. Never really sitting and pondering what the older generation actually had to teach us. And it's shameful that in Christianity we have done similar things. We need to read older books. We need to follow older teachers who have been there and done that. And know you more than you probably know yourself. Though God knows you best. You know, I have to repent because I think when I I first... <laughs> went to go and do a degree in theology, um, I was really kind of like, oh, why do I have to footnote? <laughs> I'm gonna, I, 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 I have to be honest. I'm not going to sit here and, 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 and kind of throw it at you. I'm going to have to say to myself, I, I kind of went and see, you know, I've got my own ideas of what it is. you know, and, You know, why do I have to read other people and quote them? And, you know, I really pushed against it. And as much as I did it, I was a bit resentful in my heart. I think because of you know when you're trying to write something you want to write it as quickly as possible, isn't it? You know, (laughs) and especially when you're pushed against time, you're like thinking, "God, I got to read this book and figure out what he's saying and or she's saying and and quote it and uh, difficult." But it's understanding where people have trod before and could help you. And that's exactly what they were trying to teach me. Uh, Proverbs, has much to say about the person who's um, um, enamored with their own ideas, isn't it? Not a good person. <laughs> Let me just take a quote from First Corinthians. I'm not a big person I'm taking other quotes, but I think where the other word helps us, if you want to go back and study it, 1 Corinthians 3, 9-11 is helpful here. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. We build on top of what's already there. We're not trying to go, oh look, let's build another denomination over here. For the Lord, we don't need another denomination. Because we feel that our ideas ideas are important. We need the church of the apostles. And that to grow. And that legacy to continue. It's interesting that it says that those who build... Think wisely how they build, because it says that if you build foolishness on top of what God has already laid, or even build a whole new building, that building will be burnt in the final judgment. So, what, you know, God will look at you and say, "What the earth are you doing?" <laughs> Though that person will be saved, <laughs> we, the teacher, is telling us, we who teach must do so with great preparation. We must agonize with how we would teach, not just what we see in front of us, but are we engaging with our congregation enough to be able to understand where they're at as well, so we can pitch this at the right level? It means we need to work hard, again, um, Paul has much to say about that, isn't it? Workmen need him not to be ashamed and all the rest of it. We need to work hard at studying. Verse 11. The final verdict of any teaching is not whether it makes us feel warm and fuzzy at the end. I mean... <laughs> I don't know how you evaluate it, but sometimes, like you said, you can kind of walk away from something feeling kind of a bit cold. The personality of the person doesn't quite gel with you. Um, and in a sense, we've not been really listening to the person. We've really just kind of been watching them and thinking, do I really feel them? The purpose of teaching is, 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 is not that we can kind of connect primarily with who is in front of, of you but really to connect with the word. Listen. Jesus said it very plainly, and he said, be careful in Luke eight eighteen. Be careful how you hear. If I can make a little side note. Many people didn't want to hear Jesus because he didn't have, especially when he took talking about the kind of nobility and the richer echelons because of what they saw in front of them. They saw someone who didn't have a PhD like they did. They saw someone who was from up north and probably had a northern accent and sounded a bit common. And they judged him on that and they said they wanted to hear what he had to say but never really listened to him. And as a warning, he says, be careful how you hear because that which you have, what you think you have, will be taken away from you. We are both, as teacher and as listeners, are supposed to be actively engaged in this process. It's not up for me, to me merely to convince you. It's not merely for you to kind of say, Richard, you stretch out and meet me in my world. I will not be able to pitch this at a level where every single person here will be able to understand me. But what I believe the Holy Spirit helps us to do is that as I try, to meet every kind of level that we have here, you try to up your game as well and say, what am I supposed to hear today that I don't really learn? I haven't really taken in board. You have to be actively engaged in listening. That's the illustration of the gold, isn't it? Hence why I said it's not about feeling warm and fluffy at the end. It's actually feeling like, Is there something there that I really need? Is there a prod in there? Has the preacher made me feel uncomfortable in a particular area where I know I am weak? Am I being pushed along? A shepherd would only really need a gold in order to get you to move in the correct direction. Every sermon is not about whether you feel encouraged, though it should be encouraging. It's a corrective that makes us feel pain at times. Let's move on to verse 12. As time is pressing. But even being learned is not an end within itself. And so here's the balance. Learn, but remember... You're studying and your learning isn't the end of everything. The writing of many books. We learned back in um, chapter 8, which again I taught on, about the whole idea of the quest for ultimate knowledge being a, 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 an insatiable pursuit. No one will ever get to the point of ultimate knowledge. Like, I know everything now. And so, we are not to make learning an end within itself. But on the flip side, just because we cannot know everything, we live in a society today, you know, in a philosophical sense where people don't now believe that um, we can no longer know truth, truth is un, um, unavailable to us, um, such as the postmodern and post postmodern condition, that we now think that. Well, the kind of pursuit of knowledge or any kind of knowledge is really kind of pointless and let's kind of be kind of active agnostics kind of thing. You know, no one can really preach with any certainty, but that's not what the text is saying. Truth is available to us on our level. It's just saying that the pursuit of ultimate knowledge is not on your level. You know, what is it? uh, Deuteronomy 29.29 says that the hidden things... Belong to God, but the revealed things belong to us. They are real investments in us. They're helpful to us. Again, if we think of in the in, a, in in the relationship between a child and a and a parent, we realize that the children will never know what it takes to keep a household together. But they will know enough to do their part. Keep your room tidy, eat your vegetables, all those kind of things. <laughs> That's that's the reality. You know enough. And that's what God gives us. He reveals enough to say, "Well, look, do this and you will live well on the earth." Ethically, morally, safely, whatever way you want to put it. God gives laws in order that we might be safe, that we might be well, that we do well. We not have a high opinion of ourselves. Can you imagine, you know, it's like, you know, can you imagine someone asking for directions? I think I experienced that once. It's a very long time ago where someone never believed me. And I kind of went in the opposite direction. You know, you could kind of talk somebody out of it because you're kind of thinking too long. And you feel like, I don't think this person really got it. And you give them the directions and then all of a sudden they go, oh, thank you. And then they walk the opposite. It's, I think it's over there. And they walk over there. When we come to the word, it's not like me giving direction sometimes. I I, I kind of want to illustrate this with the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler is a fascinating fascinating dialogue between two people. He comes and he says, he respects Jesus enough to ask him, what's truth, how do I live, How, how to be successful in living? And he says... Gives him a set of commands to follow. Basically, he was very good with the the horizontal. But really had nothing to do with the vertical, you know, loving God. So he said, sell all you have, come and follow God. And then he walks away very, very sad. (laughs) When you walk away from Jesus, where do you go? I mean you've just walked away from the from the truth where do you go i mean it's 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 unfathomable it's like where do you go if you walk away from jesus Verses 13 to 14. You know, Sammy um, hit it home last home last week with the imperative to enjoy life. And um, I have the pleasure of hitting home the other side of that today. Fear God. C.S. <laughs> Lewis kind of describes God as a, as a hedonist and not hedonism as we kind of like see in For and all the rest of it, is that God has really actually made the world to be enjoyed. I mean, you look at the Garden of Eden, uh, it's, it's supposed, it, he, he is not indifferent to man's comfort, or humanity's comfort, should I say. I mean, our dreams of retiring to a tropical home, maybe someday, not wrestling with the cold weather, all those kind of things or whatever ticks your fancy if you're, I don't know, mountain climbers, whatnot. We all kind of dream of kind of some way. And I I think that in so many ways, Ecclesiastes helps us to understand that because that eternity in our heart is that we really believe that comfort is important to God for us. And I don't want us to lose that whole idea of our comfort being important to him. Generally, I believe that. The alternative is to kind of believe that God is um, some miserly Scrooge, not good. And that somehow uh, he's out to get us. But he is genuinely calling us to enjoy life. So does that mean that fear God is is counteracting this whole idea of enjoying life? Well, if you don't believe God is good, then yeah. you will feel that's counterproductive. It's a paradox. Enjoy life, fear God. How on earth do I... Faulty assumptions. I mean, we tend to think of our comfort in the, in the kind of <laughs> the area of, you know, why, what, if God is so concerned for my comfort, why are fatty foods so enjoyable? I mean, you know, why not make chocolate fat-free? I mean, the more, the more sugar you put in it, pff, the more healthy it is. That's what we tend to think of our comfort. We tend to think of it in that kind of paradigm, you know, like all the things that I find comfortable in my sinful fallen state, that ought to be the norm. That ought to be the standard of comfort. Healthy stuff tends to give us problems, doesn't it? It tends to go against the grain. The reality is we've lost our passion for what is good. Some of us retain it. I mean, like I said, we we tend to like some good things, but the reality is, is that when it comes to it, our passions are quite weak in the area of our desire for good things. Loving God is equal to loving his commands. Here John 14, 23 to 24. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him, and he will come to him and make our and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. To love God is to love his commands. To love everything that he's about. To love Jesus is to love the Father and everything he is about. As I said, if you look back to Eden, he is not indifferent to our comfort. But it's where our comfort is aimed at. That becomes the problem. So what is fear in God? Obviously, um, there are people that will see fear, and again, sometimes in our translation, the whole idea of fear brings about the wrong ideas, doesn't it? Fear God looks like, well, we should be scared. And Especially in the context of judgment in this chapter, the, incoming, the, the impending judgment, we tend to think that fear God has a particular connotation that, you know what, we should be scared. But fear obviously doesn't mean that, it means to reverence him, to have respect for him, to be mindful of him. So what does it mean um, when we try to understand something like this text and about the whole idea of the afterlife? I think it would be wrong to conclude, as we look at 13 and 14 together as a whole, to conclude that, um, that the Old Testament doesn't teach us about some form of afterlife. If we look back at key pat- passages, we'll be able to see that there are definitely glimpses of what we see in the New Testament of what we see a fully fledged um, afterlife. What does life look like after we are dead? I'm not saying that initially that Ecclesiastes is he has this got he's kind of got this whole doctrine mapped out, but I believe he alludes to some idea that there has to be a life beyond this life. Let me read a couple of texts that I think are helpful in illustrating this. Job nineteen, twenty five to twenty seven for I know my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at the last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. What about the righteous? Isaiah 57, 1-2. to The righteous perishes, and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. That gives a new paradigm to the whole idea of why the, the, the righteous die early, doesn't it? A whole new paradigm. It kind of clarifies so much of Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? Sparing them. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. And finally, Daniel. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn away to to righteousness, turn many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. There's a promise for our evangelists amongst us, isn't it? Those who turn many to righteousness. The Spirit turns, but you don't understand the context. There is a vision of the afterlife. That's my point. That the New Testament clarifies. What are we to make of the term under the sun? It's it's a phrase that's constantly used in the book, and I think how we understand this is important. First, I believe it's about understanding where we stand. Knowing that we are made in the image of God, but knowing that we are creatures is important for us to understand. Especially in a society where we're starting to kind of get more and more of this whole idea that we are gods, you know, the kind of Hinduism, the Buddhist, kind of, Buddhist kind of thing, and various other religions, this whole idea that you are God. I think it's important to realize our creatureness is a real part of who we are in our nature. So under the sun is an important fo- term for us to understand. We are not eternal in and of ourselves because we are humanity, but we are eternal because of who God is in us as creatures. Secondly, understanding this view, it's realizing that we can only live to sometimes by the whole idea of what we see, what we are experiencing. And our experiences are obviously limited. but it's also trying to bring us further along. It's trying not to make ourselves an end within ourselves. And it's drawing us, I believe, in my third point, towards the gospel. There are only three places, I believe, where we see um, the reunification of heaven and earth, in i.e., we are stuck in an earthly reality right now, which... Like I said, if we look at what the, the, the teacher is saying, we feel kind of trapped and life quite pointless if we kind of just look at life under the sun. But I think it points us to the gospel. And we see in Genesis 1, we see a, a united heaven and earth, God and man having relationship with each other. And it's beautiful. The second point within scripture we see, this is in the ministry of Jesus. God with us, Emmanuel, we are now in a position where God is directly, we are seeing a glimmer, we've seen Jesus do all these miracles, we're all of a sudden, it's like, it's like wow, he's feeding us, people not starving, people being raised to death, raised to life from death, people being healed, all of a sudden, we're starting to see a picture of heaven, it's a glimpse of heaven, And then we see it in Revelation again, don't we? The restored heaven and earth. Now we're back to where we began. The gospel is what unites heaven and earth. And that's what brings us and takes us from this point of like thinking, well, it's not just about what happens here. It's about the gospel that connects us to the heavens that we're being called to represent. We are called to be a part of. We would be crushed if we didn't have the gospel, and we were aware of all of these things in life. Crushed. We are called to believe in a supernatural reality above ours. You know, great. There's a great uh, passage in um, Second Corinthians four. You know, where Paul talks about not. You know persecuted but not forsaken that that whole idea of even though we're experienced difficulties it's the whole idea that none of us are ultimately been are ultimately left at the mercy of this world Hebrews 11 is encouraging here, 13 to 16 says this, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, and truly, if they had been called to mind the country of which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return, but now they desire a better. That is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, and He has prepared a city for them. That's what the life of faith looks like. Again, you know, Sammy left us with that poignant note, isn't it? We're visitors, pilgrims. Why hoard? <laughs> Enjoy life. Let me go to my conclusion. I, I, and I, I want to pose this as a, as a challenge to us because I feel this is, again, that point where the gold comes out. What's the point of Ecclesiastes? Let me show you the significance of Ecclesiastes. If we genuinely try to take a philosophical idea of our lives, of you know, understanding what life's all about, Would you, like the teacher, find life pointless? And I'm following a line here that I I heard a number of years ago, or read a few years ago from from John Piper about the whole idea. uh, Imagine life as you've got it now. Imagine pretty much the comfort or the relative comfort that we have. Imagine that. So imagine God was not there, would it still be the same? I mean, the reality is, and this is what the the teacher is saying, is that if God wasn't there, life would be so pointless. Can I be honest with us today? Some of us don't feel life would be pointless without God. To truth be told, it's almost like, imagine not having the inconvenience of having to come to church week to week. Of not having to be reminded to pray, not being reminded to, 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 to have some kind of devotional life. Imagine if you just do away with all of that, because it doesn't make any sense. Let's just live life, because life's pretty much good. Imagine. That we could make the same kind of evaluations and come up and actually say that, well, actually, it has some meaningless parts, but it's actually not that bad if God was not in it. That's where He's leading us. Life's cool. There's bad days, yeah, but I'm still getting paid. I've got a good retirement. I have my options. The teacher has done this empirical study and believes that a world without God is completely and utterly meaningless, even absurd. What I'm saying today is that is there any reason to look up for you? Does the gospel really make any sense? Is it just kind of back-of-the-pocket insurance policy, just covering the bases? You know, like the man on the airplane who's going to die and he's praying to Allah, he's praying to... <laughs> he's praying to Buddha, he's praying to Jehovah, he's praying to Jesus, he's trying to cover the, beha- the bases... Just in case there is an afterlife. Just in case. Or is this it for for us? Are you like the disciples? When even when they don't understand what Jesus is even talking about. And he says, are you going to leave too? Where will we go? I'll be honest with you, I feel like that. Without the gospel, I would... I didn't, I didn't, you know, I, I'm going to be honest with you, I didn't arrive there the day after I was baptized. It took some time for me to actually realize that being a disciple, being a follower of Jesus, brings you to a point where if I had to choose between Jesus and the things that this life... I, to be honest with you, at a certain point, the TV shows, the video games, the the, the, the the kind of feeling I get through my work and all the rest of it, I see through all of that. It wouldn't be enough. If that's all there was, it would be pointless. I agree with Ecclesiastes. I, I believe... The teacher is right. Where would I go? Where would I put my hope? Theresa May? (laughs) Seriously, where? I believe that we have to work hard at trying to fix this world. I really do. And I think people do work hard at that. But I know that true justice can only come for a kingdom inaugurated through the sun. Wholeheartedly. That's the place of peace. Is life worth living? I want to extend that question as we kind of conclude this series now. Is life worth living without the creator? That's the series. That's what this series is asking you. Not just merely is life worth living, but is life worth living without the knowledge of God, without the son, without the gospel? The team comes up. I want us to kind of ponder that. Let's pray. Father, you are the author of all truth. You are the one who lifts us up If we would listen, you're the one who lifts our head above the knowledge of this world and says, this is not all there is. You try to enjoy us, enjoy us to a reality there, Lord God, that will bring us hope. And though I know that, Father, we will will not all arrive at that place together, Lord, in, in some way or another, where, you know, somehow we hold out maybe this life can be worth living without you but we know that father when those who are affected by you those who are um, imbued with a view of you lord that we we know that father not only do we we help the world in which we are inhabiting lord god we don't live merely for it lord we live for the, the the earth to come we point people and say come with me to the place where all things will make sense where all things will be as they ought to be. We would never try to make somebody comfortable with just the reality that this life offers, Lord. But we will come to that point where we say, let's go to the house of the Lord. Let's go to the place where we will see a glimpse of heaven, where things are right. Help us, Lord, who, you know, those of us who have who found life quite meaningless, and maybe not at that place where they feel quite comfortable to, to say that I will put everything into Jesus, everything into the knowledge of the Father. Help those who really want to see the hope beyond this life, Lord, to see it. Help them to change and turn their hearts to you. For those of us who've been discouraged, Lord, who do believe, help us to hold on. You know, we are shaken, though, Lord God, but not, as it were, completely absent from faith. You encourage us, Lord, that even faith as a mustard seed is enough. And so, Lord, we, we hang to that, that truth, that, that hope, and know that, Lord, you will make a difference. Move us along, Lord. Help us to, to follow the corrective, the corrective, Lord, and and trust in you as you would have us be. In Jesus' name, amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.